Father, thank you for your word that is so good to us, that it lays out so much that is of great help to us. Father, we pray that as we come to your word now, we will we'll rejoice in what we hear and that you will make clear to us your will for us as we listen and as Bruce comes to explain it to us and unpack and underline those parts that are so important for us to see, know and understand. Father, we ask your help in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The JT's is on. JT's, if you guys want to stand up and head up to the top office with your leaders, uh, for those of you who are in JT's, and we're going to read God's word together. Mark chapter 2, 18 to 3, verse 6. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good? Order to do evil, to save life, or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, every more. Uh, good evening, everybody. Good evening, no, no, that's no good. You've lot. You've forgotten. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. I'll give you t- seven out of ten for that one. Anyway, I'm, I, I want to thank Michael for the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, 
Some will remember that I did a, a locum here about three years ago, uh, just before Lee left uh, for a few months. Um, and uh, as I said then, we love this church and we've been coming now for a couple of months, but in the morning. But, and we've received a very warm welcome. And um, we're glad to be here. Now, in this series on Mark's Gospel, we come today to these three stories which climax in the Pharisees and the Herodians, their sworn enemies, coming together to work out how they might destroy Jesus. And the question is, how did it come to this? In the previous section, which you may not have heard because some of you were away last week, we saw how Jesus showed his authority over satanic powers and also his power to heal. Well, that was all right. But then he asserted his authority to forgive sins and that raised the alarm bells because only God could forgive sins. Before I go any further, I think I should give you some background uh, as to what was going on in those times. Otherwise, it'll be difficult to tune in. The first thing is to understand that there is a fundamental disconnect between what Jesus was teaching and doing and the prevailing religious mindset of the Jews. The Jewish teachers of those times had constructed a religious system based on works instead of faith. This found expression in what was called the tradition of the elders. And this was a collection of about 600 rules which they had added to the Old Testament law. Uh, now, to illustrate this disconnect, we have to um, have a look at Mark chapter 7. When the Pharisee said to Jesus, why do your disciples not work, walk according to the tradition of the elders? And he said to them, quoting the Lord as it is in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, these words, this people honours me with their lips But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, this was the fundamental problem between Jesus and the Jewish leaders of his day. The second point I want to have make an introductory comment on is this business of 
fasting, that is, not eating for a period of time. Today, people go through fasting in order to lose weight. <laughs> but this was not like that. This involved Jews not eating for a time as a sign of their mourning over some sad thing or a sign of their religious devotion. According to the law of Moses, Israelites were only required to fast once a year. But by the time of Jesus, the rabbis had added many other situations requiring the Jews to fast as part of their religious life. For example, they had to do it every Monday and every Thursday. They had to do it in times of grief to show sorrow. Then they had to do it as well when they felt sorrow for their sins. Also, they had to do it to show what is generally called their piety, their religious mindset, their, their, their religious goodness. And naturally, many, especially the Pharisees, fell into the trap of making sure that people knew that they were fasting. It became a badge of honour. Listen to what Jesus said on this matter in Matthew 6. He said, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. When you fast, anoint your head, Wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others. Well, let me tell you a story against myself about how I once fell into this trap. When I was a brand new Christian, about 18 years of age, our youth group, used to go and hold open-air meetings at King's Cross um, on Sunday afternoons. That's a pretty tough place to go and preach the gospel, but that's what we did. One Sunday, when it was my turn to speak, I decided to spend hour, the hours before the meeting, three o'clock, fasting and praying. When the others arrived, I said to them, I've been fasting. Not like the Pharisees, I hope, said one of my friends, and wham, it hit me. I had fallen into the trap. Let me tell you, I have never fasted again. <laughs> the third thing I want to talk about as introduction, is the Sabbath. Rules about the Sabbath, the Sabbath, were the most contentious of all the traditions in the gospel story. Originally, 
The Sabbath was intended as a day of rest to enjoy the goodness of the Lord. But in Jesus' time, there were many regulations added as to how you should observe the Sabbath. These included how far you could walk on the Sabbath, how much you could carry and not be working. Um, in fact, just about anything that could be construed as work was strictly forbidden. And woe betide you if you were caught breaking these rules and regulations about the Sabbath. Now, has anybody here ever been to Israel? Okay, I've been there many times, so I'll give you an illustration. Even today, in Israel, if you ride a lift on the Sabbath, it will stop at every floor so you don't have to work by pressing the button. It's exactly the same mindset, and it's alive and well today in Israel. The fourth and final introduction point I want to make is about the Pharisees. Who are these Pharisees? Well, they were the strictest of all the Jews with respect to keeping God's laws and all the other rules as well. All this led to them led them to believe that they were the best when it came to pleasing God. Let me give you an example. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 16, it said, the Pharisee prayed, this is what he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this cat tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Whereas all the tax collector could say in that parable was, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home that day forgiven and not the other. So that's a bit of the background that will help us to see what's going on in these little, three little stories. First one, Mark chapter 2, 18. People came to and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus answered with a parable. Can the wedding guests be sad when the bridegroom is present? And of course, in this parable, the bridegroom stands for Jesus. While Jesus was with his disciples, 
Why should they be sad? They had him and he was doing all the things and, hey, it was great. Now, John's disciples might be sad at this time because he was in prison. And we know about the Pharisees. They do it because it big notes them. But the disciples had no reason to be sad and therefore no reason to fast. So that answers the more superficial level of the, of the issue. But at a deeper level, the coming of Jesus ushered in the long-awaited time of God's salvation. As we heard last week, he came bringing forgiveness of sins. He came bringing power over Satan, healing of body and soul. So why be sad? Why fast? Why not be happy as people at a wedding feast are happy when the bridegroom is present? It's worth noting or asking the question of ourselves, are we living in the joy of forgiveness and the comfort of his presence and the certainty of eternal life? Well, if we are, let's show it. Let's enjoy it. As St Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Don't be like the Jews who were oppressed by so many rules and traditions that the search for God had become more a burden than a wonderful liberation. Now, as we go on in this story, notice the cryptic words of verse 20, where Jesus says, The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. And this is the very first hint in the gospel that the price for these blessings will be paid for, not by the guests, but by the bridegroom himself. And as we know, that price was his own life on the cross. Now this story concludes with two little parables by way of reinforcement. And let me tell you that in my experience, these two parables are two of the trickiest in the, in the Gospels. Many people in Bible studies I've taken have said, what do they mean? And you might have wondered yourself, what's he getting at here? Well, that's simple, really. Let me explain it to you. Let me read it first. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. 
If he does, the wine will burst the, the, the crinkly old skins, if you see. The wine is destroyed and so are the skins. New wine is for new wineskins. And what he is saying is that the new wine of the gospel cannot be made to fit into the old skins of Judaism and all its rules. Jesus came to set them and us free from all of that. And all that comes out from the question about fasting. And the obvious point of application is that we should not fall into the trap of letting human traditions get in the way of authentic worship and service. All our traditions, and we have them, have to be measured against how well they express the gospel of grace and the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus. Now we come to our second story. And here the Pharisees use the rules about the Sabbath, so we've got two going together here, as a weapon to try and get at Jesus. Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain, the corn. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, look what they're doing. That's not lawful on the Sabbath. Why are they doing that? Now, according to the laws, plucking heads of corn and rubbing them to eat was not in itself against the rules. But don't do it on the Sabbath. That was a no-no. And, and of course, in one way, this is a rather trivial matter. But that Jesus was allowing his disciples to do it, that, they thought, was their chance to get him. But as always, Jesus is on to them. Look at his reply in verse 25. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to do except the priests. And he even gave it to those who were with him. And the point Jesus was making is that if they were not prepared to criticise the great King David for breaking that law, why are they criticising him for letting his disciples pluck corn on the Sabbath when they were hungry? 
But as always, there's something more fundamental here. Their complaint about plucking the corn, lame as it was, gave Jesus the opportunity to set the record straight as to the true meaning of the Sabbath. Verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, get your priorities right. The Sabbath was meant as a blessing to be enjoyed, a holiday, not a burden to be endured. What kind of God would take pleasure in his people suffering on that day that he took pleasure at his creation. Even more than that, verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And behind this is the stupendous claim of Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, that he has the authority to override any law if that law is used to go against our primary duty, which is to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbour as ourselves. And this whole matter of... Uh, the laws and traditions and how they should be regarded is summed up by St Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Listen carefully. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to festivals and new moons and Sabbaths these are the shadows of the things to come. But the reality, he says, belongs to Christ. And that is the big takeaway question or message arising from the relatively trivial question about plucking corn on the Sabbath. And now we come to the last story in this set. This is the healing of the man with the, hithered, uh, the withered hand on the Sabbath. Now, I won't go into the Sabbath issues again, nor the question about whether it's right to do good on the Sabbath or not, because when he put that question to them, their silence spoke louder than words. Instead, I want to have a look at the man with the withered hand. Now, how he came to be there is not explained. Undoubtedly, he had heard about Jesus and his power to heal people. And he probably came hoping that he too would be healed. But with the Pharisees present, 
Jesus possibly sensed that this was actually a trap, a setup. In any case, Jesus told the man, and remember, this is in a synagogue, so it's like a church, people like here. He told the man to stand up and, and, and come down the centre. Stand here. And so he came down so that everybody could see him. The atmosphere must have been electric. The Pharisees were waiting to catch him out. The worshippers hoping to see a miracle. And the poor man hoping to be healed. It says that Jesus was openly angry at the hardness of heart of the Pharisees. Well, he told the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand. And as he did so, his hand was healed. The point is that by making the man stretch out his hand allowed the man to show that he believed that Jesus could and would heal him. Much like when Jesus told the leper to go and wash in the pool of Siloam or, or the cripple to pick up his bed and walk, etc., etc. There was nothing special about what those people in those situations were asked to do other than they showed that they believed that they would be healed if they did what they were told. Another personal story. I first heard about this man, the man with the withered hand, when I attended my first Billy Graham crusade meeting back in 1959. Now, I reckon I'm probably the oldest person in this room today, but you may well know that Billy Graham was the greatest evangelist the world had ever seen. He came to Sydney for what they used to call a crusade and over the one month that the meetings were held, over a million people in Sydney came to see him and hear him. And on the day that I went, there were 65,000 people in the Sydney showground. I was one of them. So were another couple of teenagers that I didn't know then, but I did know them, and that was Peter and Philip Jensen. That's another story. Anyway, on that first day that I went to the crusade, and I went to everyone afterwards, oh, by the way, Billy Graham would invite folks who wanted to become Christians to get up out of their seats and come down the front, just like the man with the withered hand had to come down the front. And he would lead us in a prayer of forgiveness. 
And in making this invitation to us, he referred to this man with a withered hand to explain the meaning of saving faith as a response of, to God's invitation. And so it was that I went forward that day and accepted God's offer of forgiveness. That was my stretching out my hand experience. Humanly speaking, I didn't have to go forward. But if I hadn't gone forward, I might not, might not have made the commitment. Just as if that man had not stretched out his hand, he might not have been healed. So the question I want to ask today is this. Is there anyone here who wants to have their sins forgiven and start a new life? If that is so, are you prepared to make that step of faith just as the man with a withered hand did and respond to God's invitation. And you can do that by deliberately praying a prayer like the one I did back then or like the, the tax collector in the parable referred to or earlier because in the parable after the Pharisee had big noted himself, all the tax collector could say was, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as I always love to say, when it comes from the heart, that is a prayer that will always be answered with a yes. Jesus never knocks back anybody. And if you think that you need help to make that step, you can talk to Michael or me or anybody you know can help. We would all be glad to help you. But however you do it, you have to take that step of faith and reach out to Jesus to receive what is actually the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. So that if there's nothing else you remember from my talk tonight, remember that you have to ask from the heart if you want to receive. You have to open the door of your heart to the one who is knocking. You have to come to Jesus if you want him to give you rest. And I pray earnestly
that if there is anybody here tonight or watching on Zoom or whatever who needs to be accepted by God, that you will follow the example of faith we see in this story with the man with the withered hand and pray as in the words of the Christmas carol we've started to sing already, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for you. Thank you.